and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning the revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on a daily basis. Everyone to say amen. Good morning. Praise the Lord. All right. I want to um, uh, say um, as well, I received an email uh, this past week from a brother in Uganda. It came in from uh, the church website, well, the church email. And, you know, anytime anything comes in, you know, we almost have to discern whether or not uh, it's legitimate or not. But nonetheless, you know, thank God for the ones that we believe are. But we got an email from Uganda this past week indicating that a brother over there had been watching and sharing our videos and everything in uh, his home country of Uganda. And we thank God for that. I was notified uh, last year that a brother from South Africa uh, was following the ministry as well. So but we thank God for uh, the videos and, and the streaming and everything and how he's opened up the doors for us to continue to minister. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. We have been ministering for the last little while concerning this area of kingdom concepts. Kingdom concepts. And we've gotten to the point where we're looking at what I define as the formula for producing the kingdom culture within life or understanding how to walk as a believer. And we've gotten this concept from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through number 15. Within these passages of scripture, we've discovered that there are eight points that Paul, I'm sorry, Peter indicates to us that are what I would define as the formula or the ingredients for the formula for producing a failure-proof life or a life that is fruitful and productive in the kingdom of God. He indicates to us that first and foremost, we should start with this area of faith because we know without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the next area he indicates to us is virtue, virtue. And so we are looking at this area right now concerning virtue because of the fact he indicates if we're going to be productive in the kingdom of God, these eight areas have to be in their proper seat. And one of the reasons why we spend a lot of time talking about the difference between justification versus sanctification is because we had to first understand that in order for you to become a kingdom citizen, to get born, is that you had to be born into the kingdom. In order for you to become a son or daughter of the Most High God, you have to be born again. That means you have to be justified by the blood of Jesus. But now once you have been born again, brought into the kingdom of God, the next thing that we see that God methodically does is he calls you to an area of compliance. This call to this area of compliance is this area of sanctification where he in fact tells you to release the old life and embrace the new life. Spiritually, the day you got born again, he who became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter number five talks about the fact of the new birth and how you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. But one of the things you'll discover about second Corinthians is that as Paul methodically goes through, he begins talking about that he's still calling you to be holy. He says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so therefore glorify God with your body. 
to glorify God with your body is this area of sanctification. Glorifying God with my mind, glorifying God with my will, glorifying God with my actions. Sanctification, separating from the way the world does things to embrace the way the kingdom is telling and calling us into compliance to behave. And so this second component of virtue then becomes vitally important for us to be cultivating in within our life. We've defined the word virtue as being the behavior showing high moral standards. High moral standards. It is conformity to a standard of right, morality, a particular moral excellence. It is also defined as strength, and courage or valor, strength, courage, and valor. It is also defined, number four, as the capacity to act or to be potent or to have a level of potency in your life. And lastly, we've indicated it is the ability or the capacity to achieve or bring about a particular result, which we've indicated to you is, in fact, power. And I submit to you, a part of this virtuous life has to do with, essentially, it is the power of what's in you that is now manifesting on the outside of you to produce character. Character is where I begin to live a certain way at a moral standard in my life based on my conviction of what I believe is right from the word of God. Jesus said, of course, about the woman with the issue of blood. When she touched the hem of his garment, she, he said distinctly that virtue had gone out from him, indicating it had to be have a residence in him for it to go out of him. And so a part of this area of virtue and developing in the virtue, developing in character, is to understand how important it is to develop in this area of generosity. Generosity is a part of developing in virtue. Developing in this notion and concept that seems to be so in place within the scripture, so enrooted within the scripture, that we got to look at it. What does it mean to give? What's important about it? What is the difference between Old Testament and New Testament giving? Is there a distinction or a difference? Last week and really the weeks before, uh, there was a predominant pastor that began ministering on this particular subject, facilitating various conversations within the body of Christ, particularly us of color, regarding New Testament and Old Testament giving. I listened to the pastor this morning make a reference to it as well. And as I was looking at it and praying about our assignment for this morning, I was led to talk about an area or an aspect of it from more or less the heart of God aspect of it more than the rules and regulations, if you will, per se. What do I mean by that? We want to examine this subject from the heart of a cheerful giver the heart of a cheerful giver. Because when you begin to understand the heart of a cheerful giver, you'll begin to understand the connective points from the old covenant into the new covenant. Is it as much about the 10% or is it about the heart? Is it more about checking the dots or the box to say, God, you got your part, leave the rest of my money alone? 
Or is it about my heart being in position to say, God, all of it belongs to you. And where you dictate or where you determine I'm supposed to give my money, that's what I'll do because I'm responsive to you as my source. And if you're directing me to give, then you're able to provide for those areas in my life. The heart of God issue is where we are going to hang our hat this morning. Now, before we begin, I want you to look, if you will, really quick. I'm going to reference this, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 10. I'm going to be reading a lot this morning from the New Living Translation, so I would, if you have your app, go to that particular translation. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 10, the writer is referencing essentially Jeremiah 31 verse 33, Ezekiel 36 and 26 through 27 where he says, verse number 10 out of Hebrews, but this is the new covenant I will make with my or with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Well, Galatians tells us that we that once were that we've been brought in and we're now the seed of Abraham because of what Jesus did on the cross and we've received him by faith. Ephesians tells us that we which were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And so when he's talking about the people of God in the new covenant, he is really talking about those that have been born again. And he indicates distinctly, for those that have been born again, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. He goes on to say, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they teach their, uh, need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. The context he's trying to explain to us is that when you are born again, on the inside of you, the Spirit of God now lives. He resides. And that's the reason why 1 John begins to talk about you have no need of anyone to teach you. He's not talking in terms of in the area of pastoral or ministry gifts per se. He's talking about you don't have the need of anybody to authenticate the presence of God because he now lives on the inside of you. Now, because he lives on the inside of you, the spirit of God is always prompting us towards keeping his law. That's what it means to be written on your heart. That I intrinsically know because of who lives on the inside of me, a sense, I have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. Because I got a new person on the inside of me. Now, let's keep going. Part of the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because the heart condition has everything to do with this understanding concerning giving. The Spirit of God says in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 5 that the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. So the way I see life itself has to come or begins to come when I'm born again through this prism of love. First, my vertical relationship with God, and it also begins to extend with my relationship with people. If you understand that, say amen. Amen. Second Corinthians now, chapter number eight. Second Corinthians chapter number eight. There are going to be any number of things that are not on the board this morning because I'm going to go over a decent amount. 
So <clears throat> you're going to need your Bible. All right. Second Corinthians chapter number eight begins in verse number one. It says, now, I, I, once again, I am reading for the sake of recording as well. I have the New Living Translation. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the church in Macedonia. This is uh, Paul talking to the church at Corinth, and he's, he's talking about the church at Macedonia. He says, I want to talk to y'all about what's going, over, going on over here in Macedonia. And he says, and this is where we pick up in verse number two, they, being, uh, they are being tested by many troubles. They're having some difficulties. He says, and they are very poor. They're being tested, and they're not exactly the richest church on the planet. They're having some issues. But he says, but they are also filled with an abundance of joy. What is joy? The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is what you know about God. Which indicates that this church in Macedonia, even though they were having issues, even though they were struggling with an area of poverty, they knew something about God, which gave them joy. He says, which has overflowed in rich generosity. So he says, they are filled with an abundance of joy despite their poverty. And that joy about what they know about God has overflowed in rich generosity. Why? Because they obviously knew something about God and giving. Verse number three. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it, watch the term, of their own free will. Now, he says, I want to talk to you about this church in Macedonia. This church in Macedonia doesn't have rich people in it. In fact, the church in Macedonia is a church that's struggling in so many different ways. But their heart of joy has overflowed to the point it is impacting how they respond where their generosity is concerned. And even though he says they could not afford it, he said they still had a heart to give of a free will. Verse number four. He says they begged us again and again for the privilege, watch this, of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. So they, this poor church, Paul is saying, in Macedonia, struggling, having issues, had joy and they had a spirit of generosity. And he says, even though we, Paul, he looked like a lot of us that are in ministry. We look at folks and say, what well, are you going through? But maybe you don't need to give. Maybe perhaps you need to hold your money and all this. You don't need to do this. He said, no, they begged us that we could sow our seeds into the church because they had joy, which means they knew something about God. Verse number five, they even did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. Verse 6, of course, which is not in the slide, says, So we urge Titus, this is one of Paul's uh, sons in the Lord, he says, We encouraged him, who encouraged you giving uh, in the first place to return to you and encourage you, watch this, he says, to finish this ministry of giving. Verse 7. Since you excelled in so many ways, he says, so he says, I'm now, I'm now not done talking to you about this church in Macedonia. 
I want to talk to you about you. He says, so we encourage uh, Titus to go to the church of Corinth and encourage you to give in this ministry of giving because he says, verse 7, why? Since you have or since you've been sold in so many ways, your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us. He says, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. So he says, you, church in Macedonia, he says, I want to talk to you about the church in Macedonia, and I want to bring this home to you, church at Corinth. He says, you've excelled in so many different areas, but you're not excelling yet in this area of giving, and that's why I've sent Titus to you, so that you would excel in this area where your giving is concerned. Then verse number eight, now this becomes important. He says, I want to encourage you to grow in your enthusiasm for God in this area. Grow in your zeal, if you will, for God. Grow in your belief in the special revelation of the Holy Spirit in this area. Verse number eight, he says, I am not commanding you to do this. I'm not commanding you to do this. He says, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. He says, I'm not, this is not a command that I'm giving to you. But I am giving you an opportunity to give, and we are kind of comparing this to a church that we know is not in position to give, but they have a heart to give. Verse number nine, he says, you know, the uh, generous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was poor, he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by this, uh, by his poverty, he could make you rich. Now he's making an analogy between what Jesus did spiritually, that he was rich, that he made himself poor so that we could be made rich. And then he goes on and he speaks about through 9 and through 16 about the character of Titus and the companions that would come with him, saying that Titus is a good man. Now you can trust him. When, when he comes and begins to minister to you concerning giving and receiving, when he comes to collect God's tithes or God's offerings, if you will, you can trust that he's going to get it to Jerusalem. And so he displays a level of his credentials. And now we get into chapter number 9. Chapter number nine. <clears throat> I'm going somewhere. That's the reason why we got to lay all this out. <clears throat> Chapter number nine and verse number one, out of the New Living Translation said, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help and have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia uh, that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many in Macedonian believers to begin giving. What is he saying? He's saying essentially, I know y'all want to give. That's why I'm sending Titus. He says, the church I was telling you about up in Macedonia that had this enthusiasm to give, it was a result of us talking about you, this church at Corinth, and your enthusiasm to give. Verse number five, watch this. Out of the New Living Translation, he says, So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promise is ready. But I want it to be, watch the term again, a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. He says, I'm going to send Titus up there with his companions. 
to make sure they can receive the gift that you declared that you wanted to give. But I want to put a caveat on that. I want to make sure you do not give this gift grudgingly. Verse number six, he says, remember this. He begins to make another analogy about us farmer. He says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. He says, don't you understand the natural law that a farmer that puts seed in the ground to the degree that he puts seed in the ground can have an expectation of an abundance of a harvest. If you don't put seed in the ground, you can't expect a harvest. And then he says, out of the New Living Translation, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. We'll come back to these verses in just a second. He says, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over, dear God to share with others. Verse number nine says, and the scripture says, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Paul is referencing in this passage here in verse number nine, uh, Psalms 112 and verse number nine. Then he says in verse number 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmers and bread to eat. In the same way, he says, he will provide the increase. He will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Wait a minute now. So he says, God is the one that gives you the seed. And the purpose he indicates here for the seed is so that he can produce something in you. Maybe that's the reason why you don't have the harvest because what God is doing is giving you seed to produce a generous heart from on the inside of you. He's saying, for God is the one that provides the seed. He will provide and increase your resources and then, and then produce a great harvest of generosity on the inside or inside of you. Verse number 11 says, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who are in need, they will thank God. Now watch this. This is important. I want you, and there's a reason why I'm going through all these scriptures because you got to get the word. <laughs> you got to get the word. This is part of the reason why we get off because we don't get the word. So I got to spend some time giving the word. The context that we usually pull or how we pull it is from um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number nine and then we pull out of it and we look at verses number seven and eight, but seven and eight have a context of chapter eight and chapter nine where Paul is making an entire thought by way of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 12, it says, so two good things will result from this, what? your giving, your sowing. He says, two things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. He says, two things are going to happen as a result of you giving. The need of the church is met. And the needs of people that they sow into essentially will essentially, they will give glory to God because you were responding to what he directed you to do. 
Verse 13 says, as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity, uh, for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. New Testament giving versus Old Testament giving. In the New Testament, what we see is that the Spirit of God leads people from the inside out. In the Old Testament, what we begin to see is that God did have to put about regulations in place because they didn't have him on the inside. So he said, you going to do this or else. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God leads you to give as he directs, if you will. It can be, and it is, through areas of tithes and offering. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. So the aspect of giving a tenth is an aspect that it does carry over into the New Testament. But just not to the degree that maybe perhaps it was said previously. I.e., if you don't do it, you will be or receive a curse. In the New Testament, when you don't listen to the Spirit of God because he lives on the inside of you and leads you to give, it is still called disobedience. And it's a display of the fact that you still trust the money more than you trust him. And so the issue that we have where giving is concerned is not an issue about God as much as it is about where you put your trust. Do you trust the money or do you trust him? Because if you trust him where he directs you, you'll give. But there are rules. Forgiving in the New Testament. I believe this is what we have found right here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. Let's look at this and examine this, and this is where we're going to close. <clears throat> there are rules, I believe, that this scripture, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, where Paul gives us the rules of giving under, as it's defined, this new covenant of grace. He says, every man according as he has purposed in his heart. I'm reading now out of the King James. Every man according as he has purpose in his heart. The expanded version of the Bible says each of you should give as you decided in your heart. The word purpose there literally comes from a Greek word which means to choose for oneself before another thing. So as a man has purpose in his heart, he must be, he says, I want you to examine your motivation. Every person, he says, at this church, particularly in Corinth, he says, y'all said you wanted to give. You said you had a heart to support the ministry. He says, I want you not to give. He says right before that in verse number five, I don't want you to give grudgingly. He defines it a little bit further on as we get into it. But he says essentially here, I want you to first, he said, as you purposed in your heart. In other words, examine your motivation for giving. He says, examine what or why you're doing it. Because no one can give, can choose your motivations. You are responsible for the motivations for which you give. God has given every man the power to make a decision. And the power to make a decision is where we locate the will of man. As you purpose in your heart. He says, <clears throat> so let him... That's purpose in his heart to give, so let him give. But then he says, not grudgingly, not grudgingly. So the first area, the first rule of giving in the New Testament under this new covenant of grace, if you will, is examine your heart. 
your heart's motivation. And then he says the next rule is don't give grudgingly, which means reluctantly. It literally comes from a word which means reluctantly, which uh, is defined as unwilling, hesitant, or declined in your giving. Reluctant means feeling or showing hesitation or unwillingness which results in this area of being resentful, a feeling of displeasure or ill will at something regarding as wrong. It means that when I'm giving, I'm giving, grudgingly means that I'm giving, but I'm watching that plate as it go all the way down to the front. Because my heart really ain't in this. I'm giving, but I don't really want to. Now, in the natural, when we think about it, and we just make it very, very practical, if somebody's giving you a gift and they're giving it to you and say, see here, take this. Most of us frown at that. Here you go. Go on. How many of us do that to God on a weekly basis, on a regular basis? Well, the preacher, I ought to be happy I gave anything. Because you see your gift as a gift to the church and not a gift to me. Don't give reluctantly. I submit to you, if you're going to give grudgingly, essentially what Paul's saying, keep your money. Let's keep going. He says not reluctantly. Why does he say not reluctantly? Because you cannot have faith in a reluctant gift. If I am grudgingly giving unto God, that means that my faith is not in God's ability. It's in my money, my job, and my ability to make my own needs. And God says, "Don't need you. what you bringing it to me for? You don't trust me no way. He says the next thing, or of necessity. Of necessity, Amplified literally says under compulsion. The word necessity means under extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. I submit to you this is the next rule of New Testament giving. Don't give out of grudging or give grudgingly and don't give out of necessity. He says I want you to purpose in your heart what you're going to do. I submit to you what is purposing in your heart. He says, I want you to purpose in your heart. And this is where that area of virtue begins to show up in your life. Because it's God in you working his will through you. He says, not under compulsion. The word compulsion literally means the state of or the fact of being required. This is the reason why Paul says in, a, in a chapter 8, he says, I'm not making this as a command to you. I'm not saying that this is something you must do. He says, I want you to examine your heart where you're given this concern. Don't feel like this is a requirement, a situation. Another word for necessity means a situation enforcing a course of action. He says, you're not to give it grudgingly and don't do it out of a sense of you being commanded to give up that dollar. And then he goes on to say, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Let me back up just a minute on this area of uh, necessity. No, I'll, yeah, thank you, Lord. I'll, go, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that in just a second. He says, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful literally comes from a Greek word which means a merry, hilarious. It means prompt. It means cheerful. It means willing. God loves a hilarious, prompt, and cheerful, and willing giver. Now, don't we all love a prompt, cheerful, and willing giver? 
Somebody says, man, listen, I thought about you and I went out and I got this for you. And I just wanted to see your face when you got it. It does something when you receive something from somebody like that. As opposed to the other person I told you about, him, go on now. How many of us, when, when we bring our offering to God, because of what we know about God, when he prompts us to give, we're hilarious, we're prompt, we're cheerful, and we are willing. Why am I homing in on this word willing? Because on Thursday, we will look at this willful giving. Where he says, I love a cheerful giver. One of the things I begin doing is I begin looking. I said, God, if you say you love a cheerful giver, what is a cheerful giver? He said, it's a willing giver. And he said, if, you, if I love the willing giver in the New Testament, I love them in the Old Testament as well. And what you will begin to discover, and I'll show you by the word of God, how many times in the Old Testament, under the law, if you will, that when God said, it's time to build my house, he said, I don't want you to take up the tenth in this manner. I want you to get a willful offering from your people. That he says in the Old Testament when they got ready to build the tabernacle, he said, I want you to go, Moses, go to the people and said, everybody's willing. I want you to give to the building of my tabernacle because they had to look at the only reason why I got this goal in the first place is because God gave it to me. And he said, God says, when I'm getting ready to build my house, I wanted to come through the hearts of people that want to build my work. A willing willful giver. I want to give you these principles we got to understand and we'll put some more legs to this <clears throat> on Thursday. Principles of giving you must know and understand. Principles of giving that you must know and understand. Principle number one, God always gives to you first. He always gives to you first. Always. He says, now he supplieth seed to the sower. He gives you the seed that's in your hand, the seed that's in your pocket. The Bible says in James 1 and verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes is from above, coming down from the Father, uh, uh, from the Father and of our heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. I'm reading out a new international translation. I'm getting tripped up because I'm quoting King James. So everything comes from God. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, he's talking to the children of Israel. He declares that he's the one that gave us the power to get wealth. Every good thing, every dollar that you have in your pocket is because and it originates from God giving you the ability to even get it. So any good thing that God calls you to give, you got to understand the only reason why you can't give is because he gave it to you first. I submit to you that seed is potential. Seed is potential. What potential has God put in your hand? What has it? You say, well, I ain't got enough. You say, right, I gave you the potential. The potential for what? For growth. That's called seed. Number two, principles that we must need, we need to understand. We must know and understand is that number two, God will never manipulate you to give. God will never manipulate you to give. God's voice is the voice of truth. He will always ask you to respond to his voice. Out of necessity. The other word for necessity, I feel an obligation to give because I feel like I'm going to be cursed. 
God's not going to manipulate you to give. And when you hear manipulation coming, even through the prism of the, of the pulpit, then you know that ain't God. A lot of times, you know, I've been in situations and the preacher getting to manipulating folks. And, you know, we got this line over here and this line over there. All of a sudden, whatever I was going to give, I, I'd reduce it because I'm like, now we move from faith into manipulation to get the people to respond. And therefore, that's not God. It's one of the reasons why, even on the side of the road... <laughs> When I see somebody and they, you know, help me, help me, help me, please. It depends on whether the Spirit of God is kind of leading you to do so because I don't really like to, 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 to give where I can't investigate. And so, you know, they got the signs of, I don't know what's really going on. Sometimes I will, sometimes I won't. But I guarantee you one of the ways where I won't do it is when he'll say, hey, man, I'm going through something. Or da 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 this. It wasn't too long ago, just, just this past Monday, somebody came up to my car. My wife and daughter were in the store. He said, hey, man, I lost my wallet. We're down in Georgia. Lost my wallet, and can you help me? He, he rolled down his window. His wife was in the back. He said, we, we just barely making it, that of this and that of that. He said, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. I would have already given him something, but when he started moving to an area of manipulation, it reduced the amount that I was going to give him. Because now you are trying to move my will instead of allowing God to move my will. Manipulation will always shut down the advancement of giving. And that's the reason why it doesn't work at church either. People want to manipulate to get the offering. Yeah, the tithes are down. Yeah, the offering's down. Now you're trying to manipulate the people of God. What is we, what are we seeing? We're seeing a display that you don't trust God. But you preach about him. God will never manipulate you to give. Now, what's the difference? I got to put a balance on this. What is the difference between asking people to give versus manipulating? Well, when you ask people to give, it can be because you're telling them, look, this is what the need of the church is. And this is where your money's going. It moves into manipulation when you are using verbiage to force people to give. <laughs> but telling people what's going on, telling people what's going on in your organization, that gives them the opportunity opportunity to hear God so that they can invest. <laughs> Does that make sense? Number three, things that we need to understand and know about giving. Giving is more about your heart rather than any need. Giving is about your heart more than any need. He says, I the Amplified, let each one of us, as he's made up his own mind and purpose in his heart to give, let him so give. Every time God tells you to give, at the same time, what you'll notice, what Paul is doing by the examination or by the Spirit of God, he's saying, when we're telling you to give, we want to see whether or not when you said you want to give, whether you really were telling the truth or not. He said, I gave you an example of the Macedonian church letting you know that the reason why they gave is because they were prompted by the heart that you had in Corinth. And we want to see whether or not that's true. You know, the way you give and the way you operate in your generosity speaks to somebody else. Your heart position that, no, I trust God. I trust God with my resources. I trust God with my day-to-day. -day. It speaks not just to you, but other people that are watching you because they want to know the God you've been talking about, will he really meet our needs or won't he? Can he really take care of us or can't he? So therefore, giving is always, it, it is more about your heart rather than any need that you have. Number four, 
Number four, what, you, what I give, therefore, is a display of what I value. What I give to, rather, is a display of what I value. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. When we look at what you give to, we can determine what you value. Quit telling us how much you love God and love the church and you don't never give anything. Or what, I love what Pastor Corbett said. He said one time that the Lord convicted him and said, if everybody in the church gave what you get, would the church still be open? But you say, we got to have that church. That church ministers to me. It blesses me. Then if the Spirit of God is leading you to do your part to make sure the lights stay on at that church and you don't respond, then we see you really don't value the church like you say. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Then I said, I love my wife. I started giving to her. Went down and bought stuff and I said, I'm going to pay for this. But I loved her, so it motivated my giving. This is what God has always wanted, where our giving is concerned, that it's motivated from love and not to get love. Number five, things we need to know and understand about giving is that natural and spiritual law operates by seed, time, and harvest. There is a reason why Jesus repeatedly says the kingdom of God is as if a man plants a thing in the field and, and it grows. He knows not. He always uses an analogy with the natural because natural law and spiritual law operates off of seed, time, and harvest. Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, before the law, um, the Mosaic law indicates, while the earth remaineth, seed, time, and harvest, Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Natural law, spiritual law always operates off of seed, time, and harvest. Seed, time, and harvest. God is not mocked for whatsoever man soweth. That shall he also reap. Spiritual law, natural law <clears throat> operates off of seed time and harvest. Well, what is seed time and harvest? Seed, I indicated to you to this a uh, few minutes ago. Seed is potential. It's potential. The potential for growth. The potential for advancement. Seed is potential. The planting of your seed is an investment. An investment. I invest in the ground. The investment is equal to your commitment level. It's equal to an area of your trust. When we think about it in a natural sense, when I put an investment in a stock, in a business, I believe that it's going to return to me money. So I invest my capital because of what I believe this company is going to do. It's a display of trust. The display of trust is shown by my commitment, by me investing my capital. And then it is harvest. What is harvest? It is when you profit. Seed, time, and harvest. Harvest is profiting from the seed or the potential that you invested so that you can get the profit. When the Spirit of God tells you to give, he said, I gave you potential. That's seed. Now, what you do is an act of your will as to whether or not you're going to trust me with the potential I gave you to reap a harvest or profit. It's always up to you. You don't put any seed in the ground, you can't expect any harvest. And that's what Paul is essentially saying by the Spirit of God, yes, even under the grace of God. 
Because, yes, under the grace of God, absolutely. Now, the Bible does not say anything about tithing in the New Testament because it didn't have to. Because those that are led by the Spirit of God, sometimes he tells you to get all of it. Sometimes he tells you to give 50%. He says, all of this is mine, and I will direct your giving. Now, we as many of us, because of the what's uh, displayed in Micah, we said the 10%, but I think the, the issue is not the tithe, it's the heart. I got lot, we got all kinds of folks saying, so look here, look here, look what he said here. I mean, we ain't supposed to give no more. See, we ain't supposed to, and I'm like, you're missing it. If you weren't going to give, you were never going to give nowhere. You're just looking for a license not to give. What is that? Wrong heart. The issue is not the tithe. The issue is the heart. When God tells you to give, do you respond? Do I trust my money more than I trust God? Do I honor God with my seed? Can God direct me where my seeds are concerned? Now, most preachers, you know, got good heart. You know, we have some bad ones, don't get me wrong. Well, I just don't need like talking about money a lot because we know of the bad things that some preachers have done. But when God gives us this assignment to talk about these things, we do so with a level of humility. Saying, God, no, 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 don't let me get this wrong now. <laughs> because I never want to move this congregation to a place where they feel like they're being manipulated because it kills your seed. If the ground moves into manipulation, when you invest, it's, the soil is wrong. That's why when people have called me and I've talked with them and I've chatted with them and they ask, well, how much do you think you ought to give? I said, what do you think the Lord is saying to you? Because the question is not whether or not you should give this amount or that amount. The question is what's going on with your heart. As a man has purpose in his heart to give, so let him give. And if you don't have any faith or you're giving it grudgingly or you're giving out of necessity, you might as well keep your money because you ain't no favor attached to it. All right, let's pray. Father God, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we bless you and we praise you for this opportunity to have gotten into your word this morning. God, we trust you with our money. Lord, times when we look and we're saying, oh God, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to take care of that? God, we always remind ourselves that you're greater than any need. You're the one that supplies all of our need according to your riches and glory. You're the one that's more than able to take care of us because we don't even have to look potentially at all the, the, the patriarchs of the scripture. We can look in our own lives and see, God, how many times you've made a way out of no way. How many times it looked like we were not going to make it and you still put us over. God, we choose as an act of our will to trust you to take care of us, to trust you more than any job that you give us. We thank you that you're the source of the job. You're the source of our profit. You're the source of it all. And so, Lord, when we return our gifts to you as you direct, it's because you are setting us up to profit in the future. We trust you, Lord. We trust you, God. And we give you praise, we give you glory for everyone under the sound of my voice. Let the trust in you arise. You're more than able to take care of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, seeming as the whole message was about giving three ways you can get to the training center. <laughs> three ways you can get to the training center. One way is by way of our website, www.thetrainingcenter-church.org. The second way that you can give is by way of our cash app, which is dollar sign T1TTC, dollar sign 1TTC. And, of course, you can give by way of our P.O. Box, which is P.O. Box, the training center, the P.O. Box, 2358 Gastonia, North Carolina, 28053. Always are received by this ministry, and we thank you for you being obedient to the Spirit of God to sow where he tells you to sow. Wherever he tells you to sow is where you grow. Your investment is, is going to equal a return in your life. You are indeed helping to keep this ministry going forward through your obedience. Amen. As a pastor, I thank God. Now, now listen, if I was dependent upon only what I see, we'd have been under a long time ago. But God told me, don't count the people. And you will not be limited by the people that you count. The Spirit of God is able to keep every ministry, every church that he has assigned afloat. The question is, one, will the men and women of God believe him? And number two, will the people that God is leading the soul be obedient to the Spirit of God? And the, all, and the thing is, and I want to encourage a pastor that may be listening right now, when they don't do it, God got somebody else that will. So I'm not moved by when somebody else says, hey, your $20 revenue, we're moving on. When my bills and our budgets are more than that, because God has a way of speaking to somebody on the other side of the planet to send the money that you need. God has a way of speaking to somebody across town that don't go to your church. Most of the seed that has come into the doors of this church are from people that have never physically walked through the doors of this church. God's able to prosper the ministry, the assignment that he gave you. Let's pray. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, I set myself in agreement with every seed that's sown into this ministry. Father, I pray that indeed that they're blessed, that the windows of heaven are open up over their lives and that you'll pour them out a blessing in which there's not room enough to receive. They'll walk in abundance because of their investment in you. They honor you with their seed, God. Father, I thank you that you said that you would rebuke the devourer for their sake. We thank you, Lord, that we believe that we receive increase in our personal life. And, Lord, we thank you that all the needs and all the, 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 the bills and the budgets of this ministry are met over and above the needs of this ministry in the name of Jesus. Lord, we trust you with our seed. We honor you with our seed. And we thank you, Lord, that our seed, therefore, is blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone did say amen. Praise the Lord. Well, if you don't need personal, if you need personal prayer or ministry, you may come at this time.